This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, good news about low-carb diets, at least for people with type 2 diabetes. For a change, good news about Facebook. And good news for women concerned about whether they have a genetic risk for breast cancer. The evidence is much clearer. This morning, the Therapeutic Goods Administration announced the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine has been approved for use in Australia. And in the top priority group for getting the vaccination are healthcare workers. They're at high risk of catching the virus as well as passing it on. But anecdotally, healthcare workers are amongst those who are vaccine resistant, which might surprise you. And according to researchers, we need to be doing more to address vaccine hesitancy amongst this key group. And Tegan, you've been looking at it. That's right. And joining us to talk about this today is Holly Seal, Infectious Disease Social Scientist at the School of Population Health at the University of New South Wales. Holly, welcome to the Health Report. Thank you. I would have thought that healthcare workers would be the last people you'd have to convince about the value of a vaccine. Why do you say that we should be focusing on them? Well, there's a couple of important reasons here. Healthcare workers and, and, and our, you know, our aged care staff, you know, they represent a microcosm of the community in general. So there will be those that have uh, safety concerns about the vaccine, some that may would like some further information, and there will be others that just need some reassurance about the um, about them getting vaccinated because they have maybe an underlying health condition. And so, you know, these are the kind of the normal questions um, and clarifications that people of the of, of the general community also ask their their GPs before vaccine getting vaccinated. And we need to instill confidence um, within our healthcare workers because they're going to have a real key role in advocating for these COVID vaccines once they get released um, into the general public. Um, we know that if we get our healthcare workers vaccinated, they're more likely to go forward and actually vaccinate the patients that they come across in their practices. And so that's a real valid reason why we just need to dedicate some time um, and resources to making sure that we can address any questions or concerns that our, our, our health workers have as well. So when you're talking about healthcare workers, you're talking about doctors and nurses and GPs, but they're not the only people in that category. Who else falls into that category? Yeah, when we say the word health worker, it actually has, it includes both clinical and non-clinical um, staff. And they may be people working in hospitals, in primary care, in pharmacies, uh, in our aged care um, situations, and also in the community. Um, and so we know that, you know, people talking about vaccination may not necessarily be just our GPs. They may be our hospital specialists, they may be people in our pharmacies, or they may be community-based uh, health providers, and you know, especially such as our, our, our Aboriginal health workforce that go out into the community, have that reach in, in rural and remote areas as well. And so we need to make sure that anybody who's going to have a, a role in, in communicating, advocating, or, or talking about the vaccine to the general public that they understand and, and are happy to, to go out there and, and spread the word. So these people might not necessarily be specialists, but they are being given a bigger voice than the general public would give to the other people in their social networks. 
Yeah, that's it. Look, we, you know, there are definitely those who are experts who study vaccines, who talk about vaccination day in, day out in a range of different settings. But there are others who, you know, maybe just need some some help in understanding about the the, the development of these vaccines, about the the um, effectiveness patterns of these vaccines, um, so that they then know that the differences if they are asked those questions, and that's. You know that that's important because these vaccines are are new. Um, they've been developed specifically for COVID, um, and so we need to ensure that there are those resources so we can, um, you know, address the types of questions that may be um, posed to them, and and they have the confidence. And if they address them once, they may then be happy to go in and and continue to advocate. So the conversation around vaccine hesitancy is often framed around safety concerns, but that's not the only factor that you've looked at, especially in the context of healthcare workers. Can you talk about some of the others? Yeah, we've got to be careful when we talk about hesitancy because we have a bit of an uh, an unconscious bias to kind of just frame it as those people who are anti-vaccine or vaccine refusers. But we know that um, vaccine hesitancy, and this isn't just for COVID, but more generally when we think about immunisation acceptance, is that it could be related to people's perceptions of their risk. So whether or not they think they are um, they have the potential to get COVID or whether they um, you know, if they did catch COVID, whether it would be severe. It can also include those that, um, you know, have challenges in actually accessing the vaccine. Um, and so there is convenience issues and they can be because, you know, talking about staff members, because the vaccine's only delivered Monday to Friday and they work after hours or they work on weekends or they work in community settings where they just don't have access to a, a vaccine clinic. And so these are some of the challenges. And, and so these health workers may just miss out on receiving a vaccine because of a convenience issue. And according to the WHO um, definition of hesitancy, this is all part and parcel of it. So we've got to be careful when we think about hesitancy that we don't draw those conclusions too quick about the factors that may be making it challenging to receive a vaccine. So you're talking about some logistical barriers to people accessing vaccines, and this isn't the first time we've ever tried to do workplace vaccinations. What do we know about the flu vaccinations that are given out each year? How many healthcare workers tend to get those? Yeah, look, every year, year in, year out, we roll out mass vaccine clinics in our hospital settings and they go really well. You know, we we vaccinate thousands of staff members. Um, but what we know about those particular clinics is that we have a lot of staff on board. Those staff members have received training to, to communicate to the staff, but we also make it accessible to those who can't get off their wards. So we do mobile clinics. We take the, the, the vaccine into the wards um, and, you know, make sure that the, those staff members who are stuck for whatever reason actually also get a chance to, to, to get vaccinated. And, and there are a range of other kind of strategies we can use to try and make it as convenient as possible. You know, and, and these staff members may need also some time to get questions answered. They also may need time to talk to someone about their particular health situation because they may have a, a chronic health condition and just want clarification about the safety for themselves. So there will be a range of different strategies that gets you know get rolled out and including things targeting communication and also accessibility. Associate Professor Holly Steele, thanks so much for joining us on the Health Report.
Thank you. And thanks, Tegan. Associate Professor Holly Seal is in the School of Population Health at the University of New South Wales. Still to come here on the Health Report, a huge study on genes and breast cancer risk and a low-carb diet and diabetes. But let's stick with COVID, because Australian research has shown the value of our obsession with social media on our mobile phones. It can tell where we are when, and that can translate to invaluable information about the spread of COVID clusters a long time before the testing discovers it. The lead author was Cameron Zacherson of the University of Melbourne, and I spoke to him earlier. Mobility data allows us to potentially track the spread of an infectious agent because it is human interaction that spreads the disease. And what potentially could that tell you that the contact tracers are not finding out about? Well, contact tracing requires cases to be identified. So what it could tell you is where you may have unidentified cases. So tell me how you do your research. What data do you use? We use data from Facebook. It's collected by a part of Facebook called Facebook Data for Good, and they aggregate the GPS data collected from mobile app users, and then they release it to academics for research purposes. And so because it's on the mobile phone, you can track where they've been? Precisely. Does this narrow the population group that you're looking at? Yeah, the coverage varies. In some areas of Melbourne, for example, the proportion of people using the app can be as high as 20%, and in other areas it can be as low as 5%. Tell me about this study that you did. All we did was take the mobility data, use that to make a rough prediction of where new cases would arise, and then compare that to the subsequently identified case data. And you looked at the Cedar Meats outbreak in Victoria and the Crossroads Hotel outbreak in New South Wales. Yep, that's right. And what did you find? We simply found that for the Cedar Meats outbreak, the correlations between the predictions that we made based on mobility data and where cases were subsequently identified were quite high. And for the Crossroads Hotel situation, the correlations were still significant, but not quite as predictive in that case. We believe it's because the Crossroads Hotel outbreak was based around an intermittent social event. It wasn't an outbreak center that was characterized by habitual movement patterns like the Cedar Meats outbreak was. So in other words, you had had people going to work every day at the Cedar Meats factory, whereas whereas you had one group of people who got together, somebody arrived from Victoria, spread it to maybe 15 or 20 people, they Mm -hmm. moved on. You couldn't use the Crossroads Hotel as your anchor point, if you like, in your mobility data. Is that what you're saying? It still worked decently well, just not as accurately in that case. And how far ahead are you in terms of the test results? About three weeks. Three weeks? And I noticed you say in your paper, this is much better at the beginning of, a, of an outbreak when the numbers are low because you can get overwhelmed. So if they had known what you know now, and you'd say, well, I'm predicting three weeks ahead that you're going to see more cases in the northwest corridor of Melbourne, how would you expect the authorities to respond differently? It's possible that testing efforts could have been allocated differently if that data had been taken into account, perhaps. I think it's also good for public awareness because if people see one of these maps and they go, oh, I live there, then they might have a heightened awareness of the risk of transmission in their local area. Early on in the first wave, mobility data from a different source, I think it was from Google, were used to show whether or not lockdown was working, to show, for example, people using Google Maps and travelling around in their car, the number of car journeys to assess how good lockdown is. Can your data show how good lockdown is in social distancing? Yeah, it's very useful for that sort of thing. We did that as well. Have you been consulted by health departments since your publications to actually do some work on this area on real outbreaks now? 
Yeah, we have. So for the Avalon cluster, we were contacted by New South Wales Health also during the community transmission failure in Victoria when the virus appeared to be spreading into urban fringe areas. And are you aware that it made any difference or targeted effect? I'm not aware of exactly how the information was used. And is it expensive to do or relatively straightforward? No, it's quite straightforward. In fact, we're currently developing a, a web application that will allow anyone to do it for themselves using a secure version of the data source. Now, you might get a little bit troubled by this, that you're using Facebook data. And even though you've ticked the terms and conditions, you might be surprised that this data could be used for this purpose. Yes. I mean, can this be found where, where you were on a certain date at a certain time? So let me be clear that Facebook is collecting individual level data, but they're not releasing that data to us. What's released to us is already de-identified and aggregated. Any numbers small enough to be used to identify individuals have been completely removed from the data set which affects its utility, especially in rural areas with smaller populations. But that's the price to pay for privacy. I can be very confident in saying that there is no way to identify an individual in the data set. Cameron, thanks very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Dr. Cameron Zacherson is in the Faculty of Engineering and Information Technology at the University of Melbourne. You're listening to RN's Health Report, and I'm Norman Swan. A woman knowing that she or her daughters may have an increased genetic risk of breast cancer is really important because it can change the way they're screened, perhaps starting earlier, and maybe using other technologies than mammograms, perhaps MRI scans, and maybe even using prophylactic surgery if they're found to be at increased risk. Trouble is that while the two main breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, are well known, there have been a relatively large number of other genes implicated but not proven. Now a huge study of 113,000 women has focused down on nine genes, which hopefully will be much more useful for women and their doctors. One of the researchers was Professor Roger Milne, who's head of cancer epidemiology at Cancer Council Victoria. Welcome to the Health Report, Roger. Thanks, Norman. Good afternoon. How did you zero in on these genes? Well, we collaborated with researchers from really all over the world to study a panel of 34 genes that were either shown to or suspected to be implicated in breast cancer risk, but there hadn't really ever been a study large enough to determine that definitively. And so we looked at that, as you said, in a study of over 110,000 women from 44 studies. We looked at 60,000 women that had developed breast cancer and around 43,000 women that hadn't. And really the study was as straightforward as comparing the frequency of those variants in women with breast cancer and women without. And these were not particularly women with a strong family history of breast cancer. These were just any women with breast cancer. No, that's right. I mean, we did have some studies that had oversampled women with a family history, but, but the results and our conclusions were based on women unselected. And that's really the key to this study is that it looks at the implication of these variants in breast cancer susceptibility in the general population. Now, when I've covered this sort of story before and we zero in on a particular variant, um, you know, cancer geneticists get very excited about a particular variant and then they find out it increases the risk by 1%. You know, it's, it's, it's tiny and you think, well, why did you blooming well bother? How much added risk? We know that if you've got BRCA1, you've got an enormous risk of breast cancer, probably a 40% lifetime risk. BRCA2 is not too different. How much added risk do these nine genes confer? And do they work together, for example, or are they individual risk factors? So, so these are rare variants. So we wouldn't expect to see them working together very often. Um, we've 
of the nine genes, we'd classify four of them as high risk, similar to BSA1 and BSA2, which gives you a lifetime risk up to about age um, 80 of around 70%. Gosh. Um, there's, there's other genes with those, also with rare variants. And then we have another five genes that, that would confer what we'd consider moderate risk. So around a twofold increased risk, which would be comparable to the average risk of a woman that has a close relative that had been diagnosed mm-hmm. with breast cancer. Right. And what do these genes do? I mean, or, or, or do they all kind of play in the same area in terms of cancer causation or is it a widespread of, you know, range of effects? Well, they do. So these nine are all DNA repair genes and many of them um, operate in the same pathways of repairing our DNA. So we, we see a, a defect in these genes and we have impaired DNA repair function and therefore an increased susceptibility to cancer, in this case, breast cancer. Now, with the BRCA1, certainly, I, I, my, I lost my knowledge of the PRCA2, you do get cancers in other organs, such as the ovary, the uterus, and in men you can get cancers too, perhaps prostate cancer. Do these nine genes confer an increased risk of other organ cancers? Yes, yeah, some of them do. Some of them, about we know more about some of them than we do about others. Um, some of these genes are relevant; they may not be included because the increased risk is around twofold, rather than those high-risk genes. It may not be a gene that you'd screen for for a woman that came in concerned about her family history, but it may be a gene we, that comes up in testing for another syndrome of, of family cases. So um, one of the um, additional genes where we saw um, weaker evidence, and we'd be, we'd be waiting for more data to, to make a strong conclusion about this, but genes involved in um, link syndrome um, where you would might, might discover that through testing a family with a strong history of bowel cancer, we've now established that, that the risk may be around twofold for those genes as well. So we do see these um, these genes associated with different cancer types. Here we've only focused on breast cancers. Now, how does this get used? Is this um, just for women whose sisters got cancer before the age of 50, before the age of 60, or could it be used as a panel of screening for all women? That's a really good question. I I will add, um, Norman, that one of the things we found here, apart from the nine genes with definitive evidence of association, we've also managed to pretty much rule out a strong clinical implication for 19 genes. So that's possibly slightly more boring a finding, but it's really important for when we sequence a whole panel of genes um, in genetic testing, we know which genes aren't important. So we have these genes that are So it simplifies it and probably makes it cheaper. Yeah, that's a that's a debatable issue because the sequencing is getting so cheap now that I'm not sure that cheaper is the issue. But we certainly know where to focus our attention and what to report back. So, so this will to answer your question, this information will be um, will contribute incrementally to, to the work that we do going forward. It will um, inform the way we interpret results from clinical testing. And remember, we also do research study testing. So we find things in our research that that hasn't gone through the normal process of genetic counselling where, where the person is um, prepared and, and given their consent to have a test. Um, they've given consent to have a test, but we haven't worked through how we'll communicate that result. And so this information will help us guide what reports, uh, sorry, what findings we report back to our research study position uh, participants under appropriate ethics approval. But lots of women are listening to our conversation, worried about the risk of breast cancer um, and the relevance of this conversation for them. Well, I, I think um, 
I think they should rest assured that we're working very hard to identify well, all I mean, of the factors. Well, that- to short, short circuit there, I mean, the question really is, um, do I only ask for this test from my GP if I've got you know a couple of sisters and my mother had breast cancer at an early age? Or um, you know, do I get it when I get develop breast cancer so I can I know what to do about my daughters? Do we know yet how you can zero in on this testing? I would say at this stage we'd be looking at there are guide, clinical guidelines established that the, the GP can look at. Um, there are ways to estimate. I, I'll probably start with every woman with a good estimation of her risk of breast cancer that takes into account genetic factors that that we do and don't know, but also other risk factors um, that we do know about and their family history. And based on that um, risk, then they would um, talk to the GP and perhaps if the risk is high or even moderate, they might be referred to a family cancer clinic where they would have appropriate genetic counselling that could give them information on the basis of which to make an informed decision. And just very quickly, because we're running out of time, uh, we know that BRCA1 does affect treatment. You get to know, you know, know, there is a a little bit of prognostication that you can do. Do any of these genes, are they actionable genes in terms of treatment? That's slightly outside my area of expertise. Beyond your pay grade, yeah. (laughs) There is some indication that for some of these, for some of the mismatch repair genes, that they're identifying these uh, that these genes are involved might identify potential targets going forward. I think there's still some work to be done in that area, but that's another area of potential gain from these types of findings. Roger, sorry for extending you beyond your comfort zone there, but thank you very much for joining us. No trouble at all. Fascinating research there. Professor Roger Milne is Head of Cancer Epidemiology at Cancer Council Victoria. And with all our stories, we have the references for those stories. And indeed, in this particular case, there was another study which we didn't get to in the New England Journal of Medicine, which overlapped with this study very, very closely, which gives an added strength to the results. Low-carb diets have been touted for years, effectively as a treatment for adult onset or type 2 diabetes. But is that just a belief or is there solid evidence? There have been a few trials, but they've suffered from small numbers. So a group of researchers have brought together the accumulated evidence for trials from trials of low and very low-carbohydrate diets in type 2 diabetes and found they can work in reversing diabetes, at least for a period. One of the researchers on the review of evidence was Professor Grant Brinkworth, who's based at the CSIRO's Division of of health and biosecurity. Welcome to the Health Report, Grant. Hey, thanks for having me. What's meant by a low or very low-carb diet? So we, we defined a low or very low-carb diet. I guess a low-carb diet is any diet that's lower than 130 grams of carbohydrate a day, which equates to about 20%, 26% of your total energy. And we defined a very low-carb one as one that was less than 50 grams of your carbohydrate a day, which is equates to about 10% of your total energy. So it's almost no carb at all, in your, in your, or overt carb at all. And how does that relate to your protein or fat? Because, you know, you're not just taking, when you take a low-carb diet, you're trading it off for protein, fat, or, you know, vegetables. Correct. Yeah, so typically what happens with these lower-carbohydrate approaches, yeah, they, they are typically higher in portions of protein and fat and um, and that can vary depending on how you would how you take that sort of dietary approach. So they weren't all paleo diets or, or, or Atkins type diets that are very high in fat? 
No, they could they could vary. Obviously, the lower you carbohydrate, obviously the higher in fat they tend to go. But yeah, it, there's a whole spectrum. But we defined it as typically a carbohydrate diets that were lower than 130 grams of carbohydrate a day. Now, these were randomised control trials that you brought together to see what the results were. What were the comparator diets? What were the control diets that they were comparing it to? So they did vary. Obviously, one of the key comparisons, obviously, they had to be greater than 130 grams of carbohydrate to um, qualify as a comparator diet. But about um, greater than 80% of these these comparator diets were generally low-fat diets that are typically higher in carbohydrate. So more or less, these studies used dietary approaches that, I guess, reflect reflect traditional dietary guidelines for diabetes management, which tend to be high-carb, low-fat. Including the National Health and Medical Research Council guidelines here. So what were the results? So it's really interesting. I mean, like it was a, a study where we combined 23 separate clinical trials, um, almost over 1,400 participants. And what we showed that um, a low-carb diet was more effective, at least in the short term, over a period of six months, achieving greater diabetes remission compared to these comparator diets. So more or less what we were showing is that the low-carb diets can be effective and effective to the extent of putting diabetes into remission. And what was remission defined as? So there's obviously, uh, there's no set definition. These particular study, we define the remission as someone being um, having a HbA1c, which is our clinical measure that doctors use to assess, diagnose um, type 2 diabetes of HbA1c and, and an HbA1c of less than 6.5%, which is the clinical definition of diabetes, was defined as having something lower than that, was defined as diabetes remission. And the effect on other risk factors such as your body mass index, lipids, your cholesterol and so on, and blood pressure? Yeah, we looked at a whole lot of risk factors and, and those other markers like health and, and weight um, in the study. But diabetes remission specifically was defined as, as having a HbA1c less than 6.5. Any harms? Look, it's really interesting because um, what we did find, and this is always very topical, is the LDL response. Because um, what you often see a lot of these so studies... So this is the low-density we... lipoprotein, the bad form of cholesterol, which is really what I was asking a moment ago. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah LDL, low-density lipoprotein, which is the ones that tend to promote... Um, increased risk of heart disease, and it's still a therapeutic target for heart disease risk management. And what we saw at 12 months is we saw that there was an elevation in LDL cholesterol with the low-carb diets, um, which is really interesting, and it remains such a topical debate around low-carb diets because there is a separate body of research that suggested that this increase in LDL response that happens with these low-carb diets actually reflects an increase in large LDL and a decrease in small LDL subfractions. Or just to translate sizes. that, it's the small particles that are thought to be toxic. Yeah, so it's the it's the small particles that tend to promote greater risk of, of heart disease, and so it, it sort of suggests that maybe the LDL itself doesn't explain the whole story, and that we probably need to look at these subfractions and particle size to better understand the full picture. So, should this be right? How many people need to be on a low carb diet? for one person to go into remission for diabetes? So what we observed in our study of the eight studies that we were able to get data to look specifically at diabetes remission, we saw that 76, uh, 76 out of 130 participants were able to go into diabetes remission on the low-carb diet versus 41 out of 131. So in simple terms, what this translated to is a greater 32% reduction in absolute risk. So in simple terms, again, what this means is That's that... That's an enormous absolute risk reduction. 
Yeah, so it means that for every 100 patients that you put on a diet, 32 more patients can become off diabetes remission if you follow a low-carb approach compared to the control approach. So should we change our guidelines based on this? Is the evidence so strong? I mean, there is this worry about LDL. Yeah, look, as, as I said, I mean, like all low-carb diets aren't equal either. And um, even those studies that we've done at CSIRO, what we've done is replace the saturated fat with unsaturated fats, and we haven't seen the LDL response. But I think the evidence is is more or less compelling now that, you know, we should consider this as a, as a legitimate option. We're not saying that there's one-size-fits-all approach, but I think that low-carb diets could be used as a treatment option with clinicians um, under close consultation um, that, who can actively monitor and adjust medications as required. Grant, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Professor Grant Brinkworth is based at the CSRO's Division of Health and Biosecurity. So low-carb diets seem to be gaining in evidence there, Tegan. That's right. A few years ago, they seemed like a bit of a fad, but that evidence just keeps stacking up. Let's go to the questions then, because you've got a few. Yes, first mailbag of 2021. And Stephen is saying, please explain the itch. What occurs physiologically within the body for the brain to detect an itch? How does the body benefit when the source of the itch is scratched? And is there any way that itching can be stopped? Very good question, Stephen, and lots of research has gone into the itch. I don't think anybody's got a good explanation. You could probably invent one of what the benefit is of the itch. You can know, you know the benefit of pain. It tells you perhaps to guard a part of your body and just let it heal. But the itch is just really hard to explain. There are lots of different causes of itch, by the way. So you can get an itch when something heals. So immune cells coming into an area, white blood cells coming into an area, and the chemicals associated with the immune cells irritate the nerve endings in, in the skin, and they send back an itch sensation to the brain. It used to be thought that itch was very closely related to pain, but the, the current theory or evidence suggests that itch is a very separate sensation from pain. Although you can get a chronic itch, with no obvious cause, and that can be really disabling as well. The other causes are, for example, um, chemical irritation, allergies such as eczema, some drugs can cause an itch, some cancers, some uh, malignancies can cause an itch in the skin that's hard to pin down. If you've got liver disease, you can get an itch from the bilirubin in your skin. So there's lots of different causes. And therefore, the treatment's really associated with, with the cause. So if you've got jaundice and you get rid of the jaundice, the itch will tend to go. One of the problems with itches, particularly in kids, is that when you scratch the skin, you break down the skin barrier and more things can get under the skin to make that itch worse including infection. And that's, so scratching is a real problem. By the way, I didn't mention dry skin, probably the commonest reason for itch. So breaking down of the skin barrier is a real problem. And what you've really, you know, the treatment of itch, as I say, depends on the cause, but there's general things that you can do, such as moisturizer, things like sorbeline. In kids, sometimes when it's really bad, you do wet bandages, and which prevent the child from scratching. Adults can do that as well. So moisturizer makes a big difference. Avoiding soap and using soapless detergents for your shower can make a, a big difference too, particularly in kids, um, and putting emulsifier in the water if they're having a bath. So, for example, having a bath rather than a shower where you're immersing yourself with, a, with a, an emulsifier in the water can make a big difference. Not having too much heat in the water can make a big difference 
too. So as I say, there's no single cause, lots of solutions, but chronic itch, nobody's really got a, uh, got an answer for. And we've got Cheryl asking about ears and earwax specifically. Her husband's hearing aid guy says ears are self-cleaning, so don't touch them. But Cheryl's GP had her ears syringed due to wax buildup and she's seen ads for so-called safe earwax removal. What should we be doing with our ears? Well, you had to look about at this recently. Why don't you answer this one? Maybe I will. So, yes, earwax is actually fascinating. Its technical term is cerumen, which I just like because it's a great word. And, yeah, in healthy ears... Which is not like, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, man. It's uh, C-E-R-U-M-E-N. Cerumen. Yes. Um, maybe I'm not pronouncing it correctly. No, no you are. It's just um, carry on. Just so, teasing the ins- you. so the inside of your ear, generally, when it's healthy, has a bit of a conveyor belt motion where those cells migrate towards the outside and any dust and dead skin cells that go into your ear kind of get caught in the wax and then it shoots itself out very slowly over time. And your jaw movement, especially when you're chewing and talking, helps with this. Oh, and I should say that when you are sticking things into your ear, like a cotton tip, you actually can interrupt that natural conveyor belt motion. And so you can actually cause blockages that way. But some people do need earwax removal and people who are at higher risk of getting impacted ears are people with hearing aids often. So if you're using a lot of earplugs or earbuds or noise protection, you're pushing things into the ear, it can interrupt that migratory quality of the ear canal. And so... Or you can just... I'm putting my hand up now. You can just have wax that blocks your ears and your first swim of the year in summer, you've got a blocked ear. Very annoying. That's it. And so it can cause a few issues. So sometimes it can, if it touches your eardrum, the impacted wax can cause vertigo. But you actually have to have quite a lot of wax for it to block off your ear entirely and block your hearing. But if you are worried about earwax, talk to your doctor about it because they can irrigate it. Like Cheryl says, they can use some oil or use a little like a, a water gun to flush your ears out. But generally a healthy person, just put the cotton tips down and walk away. Your ears are probably fine. Yep. Baby oil, wax softener, that can work too. And you know some chemists have a little plastic, a little bulb that you can gently do it with, but it's you're nervous about recommending that because if you're too vigorous with it, you can really do damage. And if it's really tough, your ear, nose, and throat, an ear, nose, and throat surgeon's got a little device that she or she can use to suck out the actual wax itself. But that's a bit painful. I can tell you that from experience. Well, Tatiana's asking about shingles, Norman. She's saying, what's the latest on shingles, treatments to shorten the illness, and is there any correlation between the severity of the original chickenpox infection as a child and the severity of shingles as an adult? So Tatiana's right on to this. Um, You don't get shingles unless you had chickenpox earlier in your life, and the chickenpox virus, herpes zoster, goes into the nerves and comes out later. Nobody really understands why. It's commoner as you get older. You can have an underlying condition um, which causes maybe immune problems, which allows the shingles to come out, but mostly they can't find a reason for it. They don't know an awful lot more about it. The good news about shingles is that there are now shingles vaccines, which you can have in adult life. They're recommended for adults over 60 and household contacts of people who might be on cancer treatment or who might have HIV AIDS, who are immunocompromised or organ transplantation because you don't want them to catch chickenpox because you can give somebody chickenpox from your shingles because you've got active virus in the shingles. Um, So it's essentially a reactivation there. And the key thing about shingles is that 
to prevent pain or minimise pain, you want to treat it as quickly as possible. So if you've got an, an eruption which is um, you know, in a particular area which is well-defined and the spots, they get a bit itchy, but they get painful fairly quickly and you think you've got shingles and you can't get in to see your GP quickly, you can actually get over-the-counter antivirals and the quicker you get treatment, the better here. You do need to see your GP, but if there's a delay for seeing your GP and you think this might be shingles, you can get on the treatment. You're not going to do yourself any harm because the earlier you start, the better. And the worst that can happen is your GP says, oh, no, it's not shingles, it's eczema or, or an allergy, and then you can stop it. But get on to treatment very, very quickly. That's the thing. You really want to be treated within the first three days. The earlier, the better. Is that because you get damage to the nerves and it just takes a really long time for them to repair? Probably, yeah. yeah that, that, that's right. It just gets entrenched because it is an infection of the nerves. We've got David asking about the efficacy of surgical interventions for foot pain and in particular David's asking about an instep fasciotomy, which I'm assuming is some sort of procedure, Norman, in treating pain for plantar fasciitis. So plantar fasciitis, it used to be called heel spur, so it's particularly heel pain, often worse in the morning when you get up and you first put your foot on the ground and can be quite painful. I've had a look at the... So fasciotomy divides up the... Uh, so, you, you, you know, you've got this... St- strong tendinous tissue at the uh, bottom of your foot on the sole of your foot and the fasciotomy helps you know divides this to provide some release there let me just take you through this so the, the use, there's been a whole heap of treatments for plantar fasciitis people have said you've got heel spurs so you go in and remove the heel spur it makes no difference really there's not very much evidence for that here's the one that does work randomized trial evidence sit down Cross your legs like as if you're a man. So, in other words, you're man spread. Man spread, but you're <laughs> but essentially your sore heel is on top of your knee, and your your the sore leg is at right angles. And then what you do, you take off your shoe and sock, and you pull the top of your foot towards your shin, really hard, putting your feet, your other hand. Let's see. it's your right leg. You've got your right hand pulling your top, the top of your foot towards your shin really hard, hard enough that you can feel with your other hand the fascia, the fascia of your, the sole of your foot really, really tightening. And you hold that for as you know, strongly as you can actually pull it towards your shin, hold it for 10 seconds, slowly let go, and do that 10 times. And do it before you get out of bed in the morning and any other time during the day that you can do it. We've got that story on the health report from a few years ago. And that does, in fact, work. Uh, other people suggest uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. You've got to be careful with those. And this in-step fasciotomy, it is done in people who've got severe pain. Like a lot of surgery, there's no good randomized control trial evidence. There's a little bit of evidence from surgeons that it does work in some people. There's some recent research that suggests that you can actually get a bit of loss of stability on your feet after the instep fasciotomy. So it's something you've got to be careful about. So speaking of surgeries to relieve pain, Nicholas is asking about, well, his partner suffers from frequent migraines and has decided that his best option is to have the muscle that's involved removed via surgery. So he's tried Botox in this muscle, which is in the jaw. It hasn't worked for him. So he's planning to go to the States and get this surgery. Nicholas is worried about complications. What do we know about the evidence for a surgery like this to treat migraine? Well, the ban on travel overseas might help Nicholas's partner here just have a pause for thought. 
There's not much evidence about the surgery. I assume what the surgery... So this is the temporalis muscle that we're talking about here, which is the muscle on the side of your head. It goes up over your ears and helps us to chew. It helps move the jaw in chewing. It goes over what's called the temporal mandibular joint. It goes right nearby there. And there, there's, there's been a whole story about the temporal mandibular joint and migraine. You've had dentists grinding teeth to change the orientation of your temporal mandibular joint. You've had other people doing operations in the temporal mandibular joint. And once you've operated on the TMJ, there's no going back. And of course, surgery has a huge placebo effect. Um, there is surgery which relieves the pressure on what's called the trigeminal nerve, which, which is kind of in that area of the same muscle. And I'm assuming that some of this research, some of the surgery, is about decompressing the, uh, the, the trigeminal nerve. That has some evidence that, that it has a benefit, but again, very little randomized control trial evidence. So I just, the, the problem with this kind of surgery is that once you've had it, there's no going back. Um, you're kind of committed. And if it doesn't work, particularly if there's a major surgery, I can't imagine they're going to remove the temporalis muscle because in fact, that would affect your chewing quite considerably. I suspect it's a decompression operation. And I think there are probably surgeons here who do that too. But I'd really, um, if you're not feeling that you're getting good treatment or adequate treatment for your migraine, maybe get a second opinion from you know, a headache neurologist and see what other things they can do. There's all sorts of things that can be done now for chronic headache. And, and maybe that's the pro- problem here, that you've got chronic headache, which can be migraine and can be just a chronic headache and requires different kinds of treatments. And for example, there's one treatment being tried, which is ketamine and very low dose, continuous infusions of ketamine, all sorts of things being tried here. So don't give up on the medical therapy before you jump in for surgery. So we've got a question here from Megan Norman, uh, based on a, st- a study that we talked about towards the end of last year about whether whether a child is born vaginally or by C-section and the effect that that has on the child's microbiome and then their health later in life. And she's one- wondering whether if a baby has to be born via cesarean, is there any way for a mother's microbiome to be artificially transferred to her baby so that perhaps it can still get the benefits of that microbiome inoculation without um, having had a vaginal birth. It's called breastfeeding. Really, one should not panic about this. This is a theoretical issue with kids and how you feed your child is going to make a big difference to their microbiome. One of the issues with the microbiome is your mouth microbiome. One of the, you know, and really what you don't want to be doing necessarily is, is giving your oral microbiome to your, your children, particularly if you've had dental caries. But Breastfeeding gives your child a healthy microbiome and that's the sort of thing that you want to be focusing on rather than being too worried. If you need a caesarean section, have it. You're going to be much better off. You don't want to be unwell after your birth if you're not indicated to have a vaginal birth. You should be minimising the number of caesarean sections, but the microbiome issue is probably way down on the list for not having a caesarean. There are some people who think that vaginal seeding, so there, there is a thing that Megan's basically mentioning in her story where they do take a swab from the mother and put it on the baby, either on its skin or in its mouth, and there's limited evidence for that. In fact, there's not very good evidence at all. They're quite small studies. Yeah, I think, I think you can overthink this, to be honest.
And one more question from Gemma, who's asking about cancer clusters. And she was reading about a recent cancer cluster in Queensland and thought it was really strange that many students in the same area, young people, were getting a similar diagnosis. Uh, Her best friend's little brother has a brain tumour. And I think she's just wondering whether there's anything in the idea of a cancer cluster and what that might mean for the people that she loves who are looking at these diagnoses. It's a real issue, and I was involved in, a, in the investigation of a cancer cluster at the ABC in Brisbane a few years ago before uh, the ABC moved to a new site. In fact, the reason that the ABC in Brisbane moved to Southbank is in fact a cancer cluster when it was in Tuong, mm. for those of you people who know Brisbane geography. A significant number of women um, developed breast cancer at the ABC in Brisbane, and in fact, some of them were working around the same table. It was extraordinary. And when we, and we got in a cancer epidemiologist from the University of Queensland, an eminent cancer epidemiologist from the University of Sydney, Mark Scott was the uh, managing director, and we went in and looked. So I learned a lot about cancer clusters from this. The problem is that when you've got a common cancer, common cancers like breast cancer occur commonly. And it's very difficult to pin it down to a cluster. A very rare cancer, if you've got a a rare cancer, maybe brain cancer could be one of them, but a rare cancer, and you've got a cluster of those that make sense geographically, occupationally, and, and what have you, then that's much clearer. But Breast cancer is hard. And we investigated everything. We investigated the soil for toxins, the air, what could have happened, shift work, various things. And the only common risk factor these women had was they worked at the ABC in Tuong. And that was enough for the ABC to say, well, we don't know what caused it, if it is indeed a cluster, but they abandoned Tuong. And we built a new building. I mean, it was like a $40 million decision. And probably it was a coincidence. It was probably a coincidence, but you just didn't know for sure. So clusters are really difficult to understand, get down to and separate coincidence from from reality. It's like our conversation we've had on CoronaCast about the side effects of this Pfizer vaccine where elderly people in Norway were dying. Were they dying because they were simple, simply elderly and it was a coincidence they'd had the vaccine or was it cause and effect? And that's exactly what you deal with with clusters. And we can get overly anxious about clusters, not ignore them, but with common cancers, really hard to pin down. I think humans really want a story. They want patterns and they want an explanation when hard things happen and science can't always give those answers. No, but it is easier in occupational settings. There have been infamous cases of occupational settings where you know, little children who were chimney sweeps uh, you know, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, they would get cancers actually of the penis and because of the carcinogenic coal dust. You know, and there are, are, are people who've had tongue cancer from, if I, if I remember rightly, from scribing because they were licking the pen nib. You, you, there are occupational cancers which clearly act as clusters. But when it's in the general environment of, say, a suburb, very hard to pin down. Well, Health Report listeners, if you have a question that you want us to tackle, send them in. You can send them to healthreport at abc.net.au and we'll do our best to answer them. We'll see you next time. See you then.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.